Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. This frequently quoted dietary manifesto comes from my guest today in the studio, the writer and journalist Michael Pollan. Michael is the author of six New York Times bestsellers, but it was his book The Omnivore's Dilemma, which interrogated the way we eat and our food production systems, that really brought him to global attention. More recently, he has shifted his focus from food to psychedelics, and in his book How to Change Your Mind, he puts his body and brain on the line to properly explore their benefits and dangers. Michael Pollan, welcome to Ideas at the House. Thank you. Good to be here. I'd like to take you right back to the 1950s, uh, Long Island, where you were born. You were born into kind of a high-achieving family. Can you tell me (laughs) the family that you you were born into? Yeah. Uh, I've never thought about it in those terms, but um, I was the first of four kids. I was born in 1955. My dad was a lawyer, uh, and my mom was a a housewife. I mean, she had been to uh, college and was passionate about literature. And I remember as a uh, a young teen, like going through her papers from Bennington College uh, and being, you know, fascinated by them. So I think my love of writing very much comes from her. My dad was, uh, started out as a lawyer. He, basically, my mother was was marrying down in social class. Her father had been quite successful in the produce business. I got my love of gardening from my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. He was a Russian immigrant, came by himself when he was 17, escaping the uh, conscription during the uh, Russian Revolution, and uh, was selling potatoes on the street, and then gradually built this little produce business, and then became a wholesaler, and got to know the farmers. Long Island, where I grew up, was an agricultural area. Uh, they grew a lot of food for New York City. and. Um, as the farmers gradually sold out, um, as agriculture became nationalized and industrialized, he would buy f- farmland and, and develop it uh, into shopping centers and things like that. And uh, my dad came from the Bronx and uh, pretty scrappy. His dad was a liquor salesman. His mother was a civil servant for Social Security. And he was the first to go to college in his family and had uh, uh, ended up in law school. But what he loved doing more than anything was uh, changing people's lives. And his advice nine out of 10 times was if somebody was contemplating a career change, quitting a job, buying a house, getting married, having kids, it was just do it. (laughs) And it almost always worked out. My mother has a few examples she'll cite of people who did crash and burn following his advice. But um, who gave up really good jobs to start to something, that something bombed, that, you know, mm. a restaurant or something like that. Um, and they were both writers as well at various points in yeah, their life. Yeah, my but... dad was a kind of writer. There was usually a, another writer involved. Right. <laughs> he, he didn't have the patience to, to write. Um, but he's published a whole bunch oh, yeah. of kind of and some sort of helpy success- books, right? Oh, yeah, self-help. Yeah. Um, and there, there are some really good books. One of them was a giant bestseller, Die Broke, it was called. Um, and... Uh, um, and your mother writes as well now. She she really writes. Yeah, she <laughs> in the old she, she, she is an sense. actual writer. Yeah, um, and a blogger, and and you know she she writes a shopping blog. 
Yeah, she well, she's uh, now it's kind of a food blog. She had a shopping column in New York Magazine that was um, famous, uh, and she was very well known as the, the the best shopper in New York. And uh, uh, and she did that for seventeen years. It was called Best Bets. Um, um, so she became a very serious career person and uh, had a great deal of success. And in the last couple of years, she's been writing cookbooks uh, along with my sisters. What was the role of food in your family home when you were growing up? It was pretty important. Um, my mom was a serious cook. She, um, you know, watched Julia Child. I remember watching Julia Child with her. She thought it was hilarious. And and she would make these, some for us, just us kids, would make, you know, we whenever we had like broccoli or asparagus, she'd make a hollandaise sauce. You know, it was, <laughs> we ate really well. I mean, there it was weird. My dad was seldom with us for dinner because he worked in the city and it was a long commute and he got home quite late. But we would always have dinner, family dinner, um, with or without him at uh, at six o'clock, and she would make a you know a real meal. Um, and there was a rotation. I mean, you could you know on on Tuesdays you were going to get pasta, and on Thursdays you were going to get beef. There was a lot of meat. Was there a moment where you realized that the way that your family ate was unusual? Yeah, when friends came over. Mm-hmm, right. We had some food that was really exotic. I, I do remember friends coming over and we'd be having like artichokes, which like no one else ate at the time <laughs> and are a bizarre food. And so there were people who'd come over and thought we we ate, you know, fancy food or bizarre food in one way or another. And our friends would always come over. We had so many friends who wanted to eat there. And um, to the to the point where it became a problem um that they would just scarf up all the food and um <laughs> so yeah it was very popular and i you know i'm a great believer in the importance of family i think it's one of the great social institutions i think it's really where some of the most important education goes on with kids um uh because you're you know it's at the table that you learn the art of conversation you learn how to argue without fighting you learn how to share um, and we would talk about the day, you know, what had happened in our days and sometimes about politics. And so, yeah, it was great. I, lo- I loved it. Um, your, your maternal grandfather is a big figure in your family growing up. And certainly um, you said that he influenced you and your attitude towards food and gardening. Um, but his relationship with your father wasn't always straightforward. Is that right? No, yeah, they, they didn't get along. I think my grandfather, who was very old world kind of conservative guy, I mean, he was illiterate. He, you know, he could add a column of numbers, but he could he could read the headlines in papers, but he never went to school. And you know, he just he just thought my mom could have done better, <laughs> I think. And he was very proprietary, very patriarchal, and it drove my father crazy. He would decide on his own that we needed a hedge of rhododendrons along our driveway. And he would send over a crew and they would just kind of install it without checking with and my so father. And so you'd come home and there'd be like a new garden bed. Yeah, I can see how that would be annoying. Yeah, he was very presumptuous. Uh. So there was some tension there. And they had different philosophies of landscape, um, which is what I, I, I dwelled on in Second Nature. Mm. Um, my grandfather was a great gardener. He loved gardening. He had a, a it must have been a quarter acre garden. It was just him and my grandmother. And, and he had to spend a lot of time figuring out how to give away all this produce, which he did. Um, 
and it was an incredibly orderly garden, and there was not a, no weed dared ever rear its head in well, this garden. Well, he waited every morning, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Mm. He did. And there was no chemical he was, you know, reluctant to use, I'm sure. It was, you know, there bugs even didn't venture in this garden. <laughs> I think it was just too toxic. Um, whereas my father was a really indifferent gardener. He, he, was, he was, I described in one of my books as a great indoorsman. <laughs> and he, um, you know... He he never mowed the lawn, and um, the lawn in America is a really important institution because it's it's shared. No fences, right? No fences, no hedges. That's very English. But it depends on everybody mowing their lawn every week, and my father just had no interest in that at all. And so he it it became a, a source of real tension with his neighbors, uh, who um, there were other issues too. We were the only Jewish family in a largely Catholic neighborhood, so there. The lawn may have symbolized other things, but I was aware of the lawn. And I was embarrassed that we had the worst lawn in the in the neighborhood. Anyway, one point he let the lawn go completely and it and it became a meadow. And you have to realize these are tiny little plots of land, one after another after another. And the neighbors um were really upset and they deputized my parents' only friend, George Hackett, in who's an engineer and he worked in the, and he lived right right next door to us. And they asked George to go talk to my dad about it. And he came over and he was very nervous about it and uh, and explained that the neighbors were really upset about the lawn and it was ruining property values and could he please mow the lawn. And uh, and without answering, he went out to the garage and he cranked up the lawnmower and he started mowing. And George was like, yes, except he just mowed his initials <laughs> in the lawn and then he never mowed again. <laughs> so he sort of tattooed our lawn with SMP. Um, and we moved shortly after that. But I didn't, I saw it as kind of a protest, an antisocial yeah, thing. Yeah, it feels but, like a bit of a screw you to yeah, kind of little, expectations. Yeah, a little bit of performance art. But in fact, it was really just laziness. Um, <laughs> because as soon as he could afford to have someone else mow the lawn, he had a nice lawn yeah, that was right. very well manicured. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of a teenager were you? Um, in those days, the Vietnam War was a real dividing line, and jocks versus hippies was a dividing line. And I was definitely on the hippies against the war side of things. And so, you know, we went to protests, and we smoked pot, and we didn't do athletics. You know, it was that kind of milieu. Um, I was involved in a literary magazine, though. I was the food critic and the movie critic for my school high school paper, but that was mostly to get free... Um, dates you know i could take someone into the city and we'd go see a movie and have dinner and write it off um i've been turning my life into you know a source of um literary value for a very long time i realize <laughs> so you left school and, and went to college to study english literature and it was around this time that you met the woman that um you've been with pretty much ever since you were really young when you met your wife judith belzer I was a sophomore, and she was a freshman. Yeah, we met at Bennington College. How did you meet? She was in the same house. They didn't have dormitories. They had these houses that, that about, I don't know, 30, 20 people in each one. And she was in the same house, and I just thought she was very cute. Mm -hmm. She was. She seemed like a very introspective person. She kept to herself. She was. She seemed like she had a, a, a rich interior life, um, and she was interested in art. She was a very good artist. 
Um, so all that I found intriguing. And was there a moment where you kind of realized that it was going to be a longer term thing? No, d- no idea. Um, and that was a funny thing because we we got together and I went off. I left Bennington and transferred to Oxford. So we were living apart for for substantial amounts of time along the way. And but then we moved in together after we both had graduated. And it is you know it's a funny thing when you have a relationship like that, like is this forever? And, you know, we didn't get married, but we were living together. And at a certain point, we were like, well, if we're going to have kids, maybe we should get married. So it was it was a kind of dawning realization that this was forever. Um, and uh, I mean, which is a wonderful thing, but you don't expect it to be at that point. You think this is, you're too young for this to happen. We had a, uh, or Judith had a big impact on my on my career in a in a couple ways. One was that, she took up painting after college and was very serious about it and would paint all weekend. She was painting outdoors landscape and things like that. And there was nobody to play with. Um, <laughs> so I started writing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because for me, I had a day job. I was working in a magazine, but I, it wasn't a writing job. And um, and so I started writing on weekends and that those became the, the essays that became uh, second nature. Mm-hmm. And we got into this rhythm of um, going to the country. We we lived in a very small kind of cave-like apartment in New York, very dark. And um, as soon as we could afford to, we bought this little place about two hours away, and we would go there every weekend. And we just got into this rhythm of working there, working in the country, which is something we still both love to do. Um, so, and she also the other the other way in which she had a big effect on me was being an editor. She's a, she's a um, a, a terrific reader. She's a big reader. She reads mostly fiction. Um, so to hold her interest with nonfiction is, you know, is a challenge. And and she has very high standards of, of prose. And so she reads every, everything I write before it leaves the house. It doesn't go to an editor until she's, she's signed off on it. So that's been great. So what is your creative process? How do you get your first idea? Well, I, you know, I, ideas come in a, a variety of from a variety of directions. I've gotten some of my best ideas uh, from editors, you know, like edit- somebody saying, "I'd like you to do a story about yeah. this." Or mm. I worked with. I had a, a very close friend at Harper's and a colleague named Jerry Marzarati who went on to become the editor of the New York Times Magazine. He's retired since, but he's a brilliant editor, and and part of his brilliance was um, casting. Hmm. This writer should be working on this right now this would be interesting to hear about. And so he got me really, um, I, I had written one piece on, on genetically modified crops that grew, that was an idea I had um, in, just after they were introduced in like 98 or 99. And um, I was writing a column for the magazine about gardening and I thought, oh, this is the next thing in plants. They're genetically modifying them. Uh, I want to grow it in my garden, see what it's all about, and uh, write about it. And so I did a, a piece, and it turned into a cover story for the magazine, um, Playing God in the Garden. is about Monsanto. And um, after that, he said, we'd like you to write about food for a couple of years. We think this is a really rich topic, and agriculture. So they, they launched me on the pieces that became Omnivore's Dilemma. Mm. And a very important piece I wrote that became a chapter in the book uh, it was called Power Steer, and it was the I, I bought a cow and followed it through the process, and um, that was Jerry's idea. Um, and uh, so, you know, these these are not virgin births, mm. you know. 
often. Other times they're just things that I'm interested in. Sometimes you you see, it's like learning a new word and you, suddenly you keep seeing something and you, you're collecting string. And like on psychedelics, you know, I heard there was a dinner party and somebody, this woman in her 60s was talking about having recently done LSD and she was a well-known psych, psychologist. And that's, that's interesting. Then I hear about these studies going on um, and I and I bump into this paper on my computer and it's like, oh, there's something going on here. I mean, I think, I think what we do as journalists is try to, you know, feel where the zeitgeist is going. Mm. And, um, and we're not always good at it, but... And you don't want to be too far ahead. You know, you want to see around one corner, but you don't want to see around two corners because no one will know what the hell you're talking right. about. I remember when I was writing Omnivore's Dilemma, that's published in 2006. I kept saying to Judith, I'm late, I'm late. I wish I had this book out now because mm. there was stuff going mm. on. Eric Schlosser had published Fast Food Nation a couple years before. Marion Nessel had written an important book called Food Politics. So it was nascent, but it was happening. There was a wave, and I kind of caught it. It was kind of cresting when my book came out, and um, but it, it it didn't, you know, didn't start with me. Um, but it did, you know, it, it it did change the conversation, and and that happened a couple times. And I I feel very fortunate that that's happened. Did the books that you wrote, and there was the Omnivore's Dilemma, but then there was In Defense of Food and Cooked and and various others. Did they? change the way that you consumed food? Yeah, well, Omnivore's Dilemma, which was really my deep dive into how our food is produced uh, and the environmental implications of that, those processes, changed the way I eat in a dramatic way. I, was, I, I didn't think about where meat came from or how chicken was produced or how, how pigs lived. That wasn't on my radar. I ate what I wanted to eat, and it was food. Um, and it was in the course of writing that book where I spend time on feedlots and chicken houses and pig farms um, and saw you know, how horrible the process is, how cruel the process is, and how wasteful it is of resources that, I, you know, there's things I can't eat anymore. I was, I was fine eating McDonald's um, before all that. And we fed McDonald's to our son growing up. We were thrilled when he would eat a hamburger because he was such a picky eater. But I lost my appetite. I really did. I mean, I have I have a feeling of disgust when I think about some of the you know the foods that I used to eat without, without a problem. About it. Mm -hmm. But you know, when you see how the sausage is made, the sausage tastes differently. And I and I and I got a really close up view of how the sausage is made. Um, so I don't eat industrial meat. I, I will eat. I eat very little meat, but it's meat from farms I know. Um, you know. If a, if a chef is very clear that this is grass-finished beef or something like that, I might order it, um, or pastured chicken. or um, But uh, yeah, I'm very picky about the meat I eat especially and eat a lot less meat than I used to. So I would say that's the biggest change. Um, I'm, I was a kind of, I mean, I, I've always cooked, but my idea of cooking was like pretty rudimentary. And now I, you know, cooking is a very big part of our life. We cook every night and we cook together. We have a lot of fish, which I still eat with some abandon because I haven't written about fish. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> if you like well, fish. Well, <laughs> you know, look, eating fish has gotten very vexed. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether our kids are going to kind of remember the time that you could walk into a fish shop and choose from like, you know, uh, 20 uh, different species. They and, may well not. Mm. Um, no, the fisheries are close to collapse. And um, 
so anyway, the the whole process of cooking is a way to decompress at the end of the day. It's you know we have an island in our kitchen and we 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 can cook there together. And when our son was there, he would join us very often. In fact, we insisted he do something to contribute to dinner, even if he had a lot of homework. But to miss a meal seems like such a shame. Uh, I just don't do it. And mm-hmm. like when I'm out of town, Judith will skip a meal or she'll, you know, just have some leftovers or you know, steam some kale and call it good. It's outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I completely agree. So yeah, the books and and I have a sense of when I'm eating, I'm I'm very conscious of where the food came from. I'm very conscious of the 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 communion aspects of being at the table and and that this is, you know, it's a it's a it's a spiritual practice of a certain kind and and uh, and because I garden also and I and I eat out of my garden whenever I can. So all that is still very important to me, even though I'm not writing about it these days. I like that you say that it's a spiritual practice because that does link it nicely mm-hmm. with the work that you've done into psychedelics because that's one of the things that preoccupies you in how to change your mind. Once you'd become aware that there was research going on in this area, what was the hook that made you go, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to spend the next couple of years of my life on? Well, you know, to me, psychedelics is of a piece with a larger story about the human engagement with other species in the natural world. I've, I've Ever since I wrote Botany of Desire, which is a really key book for me and has a lot of germs of future work in it, because um, it looks at the food system a little bit, and it looks at evolution and co-evolution, and it looks at um, psychoactive plants. There's a long chapter on cannabis. And I was very interested there in how plants succeed by gratifying our desires, that that's their evolutionary strategy. So what are our desires? What can you learn about us from this, these relationships we have, these domesticated plants? Well, we love beauty. Um, we need to eat. Um, and one of the things we use plants for and have forever, all cultures, um, has been to change consciousness. And that's always struck me as a very curious desire. The others are easier to explain in evolutionary terms, but changing consciousness doesn't necessarily seem that adaptive. Um, I think it is actually kind of mental nourishment, I think, and a very important one. Um, and so, so that was in the back of my head. I mean, that I, 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 you know, people saw me as a food writer, but really, I'm I'm a I'm a kind of nature writer. Mm. I mean, I'm really interested in our engagement with the natural world in an active way. A lot of nature writing is written from the the perspective of the spectator. Um, And it's kind of a passive relationship or or totally ideated relationship. But we engage with nature. You you just can't sit there. You have to take it into your body to survive. You change it. We change nature all the time. I mean, now it's obvious to everybody, but for a long time it wasn't. Um, And so... I thought the garden was a more interesting place to explore that relationship than the wilderness, which is traditionally where Americans have gone to think about nature. But we've done that. So now we have to figure out what do we do? How do we engage with nature in a responsible way in the 82% of the landscape that we're not going to protect as wilderness? Um, So anyway, I've been very involved in that, uh, in thinking about that. And when I learned about the psychedelic research, it brought me back to that question of why why might it be useful to people to change consciousness and why is it so appealing to us? And here was a really radical way to change yeah. consciousness, um, as radical as we knew. It feels like, though, you know, when you walk into the wilderness or you swim in the ocean or you do any of these things, you 
do almost inevitably feel this huge connection with nature and the earth and things, which doesn't necessarily require the ingestion of psychedelics. No, and it's true that people have experiences of awe in nature or flow that are, you know, really moving and powerful. Um, but I've never had one as powerful as I did on psychedelics, I have to say. And um, I think there is a sense at which most people feel they're always at at least a slight remove from nature. We talk about having a relationship to nature. That's bizarre. No other creature has a relationship to nature. They are nature. Um, and so we feel in our bones that we have one foot in and one foot out which is odd, but it's a, it's a key fact about us. But there's also a huge history in, in kind of particularly, well, across all cultures, I, I, I think, but particularly in Western culture, that, that human beings are the subjugators of nature yeah. rather than the participants in nature. Yeah. And, and, and God and has it's, given It's a sign a of special, culture, right. you know, that, right. that, that, that well, you we can control culture. nature. I mean, you mm. transform nature into culture, and this is what we do. And so that we have a very ambiguous uh, relationship with nature. And... Um, you know, we were given dominion by God in the Judeo-Christian um, uh, tradition. Um, but the, what stands between us and nature, I think, is the ego, the human ego, which is a, a very interesting and vexed uh, construct um, that evolved for perfectly good reasons that, you know, you, could, you can kind of figure it out, reverse engineer that it, why it would be adapted to have an ego. But egos tend to um, build walls and they tend to objectify the other, whether the other is other people or nature. Mm -hmm. um, and that objectification is very powerful because it allows you to do the kind of changes you're talking about. This is ours to subjugate. So you talk a lot about the dissolution of ego. Yeah, I think that's the key turn in the psychedelic experience. It, it appears to be, it doesn't always happen. It's important to understand. It's something that happens fairly often on a high dose psychedelic experience when it's conducted in a very safe environment. You're not gonna let your ego dissolve if you're at a rave or at a, you know, at a, a festival or something like that. It's just too, too risky. There's too much social work. But if you're in the proper environment and, you're, and you can surrender, this is something that happens. Uh, in the trials, it, it's happening about three quarters of the time. Mm. Um, and I think that is, and, and that is one of the best predictors in the therapeutic setting that a psychedelic treatment will be successful if people have this mystical experience, which is sometimes called unitive consciousness, this sense of you're transcending yourself and you're part of something larger. And, it, and for me, it was the most profound part of the experience. And, um, and I think it has enormous uh, uh, value um, as, you know, to, to, to realize, to learn that you're not identical to your ego, that when your ego is gone, you're not gone. You mm. survive that. There's something um, core that's, that's there that is a... Yeah. And there's a core and there's a kind of disembodied awareness. Mm. Um, there's another perspective that arises. Um, and I think that's really liberating. I think egos, egos are very useful. They get the job done. They help us to reproduce and survive and all this kind of stuff. Um, they help us succeed. They get books written, podcasts made, all this stuff. Um, but they also can be really punishing. They, they can turn on us at various times. People who are depressed have overactive egos that are kind of spinning very destructive stories. And so a kind of re temporary relief from it seems to have a real therapeutic value. And it has a spiritual value. I mean, I, you know, my takeaway from the psychedelic experiences I had, I, I didn't really 
think I had ever had a profound spiritual experience, and I was a little allergic to the term. I really thought to to be spiritual was to believe in supernatural things, um, a, a beyond, another world, unseen world, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I was just I'm a, I'm kind of a philosophical materialist, um, but I realized I got that wrong, um, and that spiritual experience is really about connection. Mm. It's about profound connection. It can be to a something supernatural. It can be to God or divinity, but it, it also can be to other people uh, in the form of love, and it can be to nature. And it is the ego that stands in the way of that. Um, and that when your ego is softened or made permeable or, or allowed to vanish, you, the, the experience of connection you feel, um, and in my case, it was to music and, and once to the plants in my garden, is so powerful as to be spiritual. And so I, I came to understand that the opposite of, of spiritual is not material. The opposite of spiritual is egotistical. And that was a, you know, that was an important insight for me. I'm interested that you said that the experience of psychedelics provided a temporary break from ego, because from what you've written, it actually sounds like it might be more permanent than that. No, the ego is the ego comes back, um, the ego reconstitutes, but what doesn't come back is this one-to-one identification that I am that voice, hmm. and that now I have a kind of distance on it. Um, I see it's up to its old tricks. I can kind of ignore it sometimes. I can recognize when I'm getting defensive. That's that. You know, it's the exact same insight that you might get after 10 or 20 years of weekly psychotherapy. Um, that's one of the things you work on, right? And um, is, is getting some perspective on your ego uh, and your superego, if you're in a Freudian vein. Um, but I got it in an afternoon, you know, in a matter of a couple hours. And that's kind of what's, to me, striking about it. So I, it's changed my relationship to my ego, definitely, but it's still there. Has it changed your sense of self? No, I still feel like I'm the same person. Um, you know, I think I'm somewhat more open, somewhat more patient, um, and certainly open to mystery in, in ways I wasn't. I, I think I can live with uncertainty about things better than I could before. Um and, you know, openness is a measurable domain mm -hmm. of personality, and it does appear to change on psychedelics. Uh, and I do feel that that's had an effect. But, you know, I only had seven or eight experiences. Um, I haven't gone as deeply as I might, and as I'm, and I hope I can go at some point. Um, I'd feel more comfortable if it was legal. Mm. Um, but I have a sense that, you know, I've learned a lot on the experiences I have, and yet there is still more to learn. So one of the things that characterizes the guided experiences that you've done and that others do is that you go into a room with a guide who takes you along and you take a high dose. Um, with... And you're prepared very carefully. Yeah. I think that's a very important And part. you've got headphones on and, and you've, yeah. got, you've got an eye shade on. I understand that that is so you can become more introspective, but Given how many people talk about a connection with nature that yeah. psychedelic experiences um, can induce or can bring about, why aren't these experiences conducted in the wilderness, for example? Yeah, well, because these are docs doing experiments in hospitals. Right. <laughs> and, 
you know, for them, just outfitting a room to look like a living room was a big deal. Sure. Um, and and as it is, there's so many variables when you're testing psychedelics, and the set and setting are so important. And they're trying to kind of make that consistent. So the eye shades and the playlist, you know, it's not you're not listening to any music. Everybody's listening to the same playlist. All oh, right. In a in a in one university's trials, I think it'd be very interesting to experiment with different environments. Um, but I think. There's so many confounding variables as it is um, that they've been reluctant to do it. One of the things that struck me when I was reading your book was the kind of very tenuous barrier between reality as we understand it and perception, right? Yeah. And 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 the kind of constant interplay, which which is typically completely unanalyzed in most people. Right. You know, you well, sort that, of, I think that's part of the value mm-hmm. of 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 changing consciousness is you see what normal consciousness consists of. And one of the the fascinating things I learned about was um, the fact that our normal consciousness is a very imagined thing. Mm. Uh, some neuroscientists called it a controlled hallucination because you're not simply taking in um, visual, auditory, tactile information and constructing This is in your regular life you're talking about. Yeah, this just, is Just moving through the world straight no, as a die. you are predicting what you're seeing. You take the minimum amount of information. There's a certain pattern of light and dark that you know as a face. And so you go right to face with, that, with, a, with a tiny bit of information. And then you correct it. If it's not a face, you, you get some information. You know, there's this error correction feature. But um, it's called predictive coding. And... Um, and it suggests that ordinary consciousness is a constructed thing also. Now, predictive coding works very differently when you're on um, psychedelics. The, the, the guesses become somewhat more extravagant. So, for example, if you're looking at clouds, you're, you're more likely to see faces. The, the, the brain's desire to create order and reduce uncertainty uh, and to leap to conclusions, basically, is powerful and, and it is un tethered on psychedelics. On the other hand, there are certain things that you see more accurately um, because predictive coding lies to you. And the example I talk about in the book is this rotating mask experiment. Mm-hmm. There's a famous experiment in psychology where you take a, a mask of a, of a face and it rotates on a turntable and it's convex uh, as, as faces are. And then as, as the back reveals itself to you, your mind refuses to see it as concave and it pops out. And that's your mind lying to you because your mind is convinced based on lots of experience from the time your mom held you in her arms that faces are convex. Um, but on psychedelics, uh, you do see the back. Um, so in that instance, you're getting a more accurate picture of the world. But it also, you know, when you start really unpicking perception like that and, and you start really thinking about how subjective um, our experiences of the world are, it then raises the next question, which is what if it's all bullshit? Well, I think that's right. And I would say to the docs, you know, maybe you're just feeding people illusions. And they had a variety of answers. One was, well, we don't actually know what happens after you die. No one's planted these ideas with people. These ideas have come out of their own minds. Um, and then other people say, well, who cares? You know, if it helps people, um, that these narratives are, you know, fine. I mean, you're not planting them with people. You know, it depends on what kind of insights you're talking about. You know, the idea to, to have the insight that we are deeply connected to nature 
is not bullshit. We know this is true. We just forget it in our daily lives, that we are not separate, that nature passes through us constantly, and that you know we are dependent on so many natural processes, and um, we are part and parcel of the universe, and uh, the universe does pass through us. And so you can prove that scientifically. But science is just another vocabulary for the same thing. So all of this is constructed to one degree or another. Um, but all of it, you know, science and literature and, and journalism and, and, and gardening and everything really is part of a very human quest for... Meaning. Meaning, for, for, for a deeper meaning. You know, what, 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 what do you think drives us to look for that? Why aren't we just happy to kind of say, hey, the, the, the ocean's nice to swim in and the sunset is beautiful and I, I yeah. love my partner? You know, we're meaning-making and seeking creatures. I think it just goes really deep. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why it's it would be adaptive to insist on meaning, but it is certainly uh, an important part of psychedelics. Psychedelics make everything meaningful. Um, so does religion, by the way. Um, there are several systems that do that. Uh, but this need to infuse things that may be pure chance. I mean, you know, we may be here strictly roll of the dice, pure accident. Um, there may be no meaning to life at all, but we want there to be. But to to reinfuse um, those ideas with a sense of um, power uh, and resonance uh, seems to me a, a, a really valuable thing to do. And and socially very useful. Well, Michael Pollan, I really hope that you don't stop writing books. I am looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much for coming into the Opera House and talking oh, to me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Michael Pollan came to the Sydney Opera House for a mind-expanding conversation with Norman Swan in 2019. You can get that conversation in our show notes. And next week's episode of Ideas at the House features feminist firebrand Clementine Ford in a conversation guaranteed to shake up the patriarchy. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.